You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We've been studying now this call of Isaiah for a few weeks, what it teaches us about um, biblical worship, and, and uh, so we tried to dig down to the foundation, uh, to the, uh, the building blocks, if you will, of, of what authentic and biblical worship uh, is. And so we've talked about the revelation of God, uh, the confession of sin, the proclamation of the gospel, and then this morning, uh, an obedient response. And so we, we have in this story a biblical pattern for worship. When we talk about worship, there's not uh, a specific order that we find uh, in the Bible uh, per se, but we do have this pattern. And then this pattern kind of guides us. And, and though there will be a diversity of styles, uh, perhaps there'll be a diversity of, of different languages and cultures and preferences of styles and all those different things, these biblical marks of worship don't change. And uh, do styles change? Yes, but, but does the form of worship? No. It, it's these basic building blocks. There's a biblical pattern that we should seek to follow, and this is how God desires to be worshipped. It, be, it begins with God, right? It can't begin with us. It uh, begins with Him. So it starts with the revelation of God, the Scriptures, the prayers, the songs, all of them saturated with, with God. Uh, and, and if we're worshiping the God of the Bible, then we'll certainly come under conviction of sin. Uh, it will naturally follow. And over and over again, we see that in the Scriptures. In the presence of a holy God, folks are convicted of their sin. It, it's inevitable. If, if we're not... Uh, encountering God and thinking of God, considering God, and then feeling something of the weight of His glory, His beauty, His holiness, weighing down on us, convicting us of our sin, that we might just be singing songs and not worshiping. And then what follows is the good news of the gospel about a God who has redeemed us through the blood sacrifice of His Son. Atonement has been made. And without it, worship is not possible. It's only through the mediator, right? Through Jesus, our Savior, that we have access to God. And so then naturally and logically, biblically, the focus of our worship is, is Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then from this incredible redemption, there is to be an obedient, a grateful, joyful response uh, of the worshiper, and that we glimpse it here in Isaiah. So let's read the story one more time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Lord, we pause and ask for your help once again. That you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond in the same attitude and uh, thought as Isaiah. Unconditional surrender and obedience. Lord, use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of the revelation of God and the confession of his sin and the proclamation of the gospel, what follows is a response from the worshiper. Isaiah is ready to respond, given what God has done in his life for him, given who God is. Authentic worship requires a response. And we said this from the beginning of our study, that worship is not something that we attend. It's something that we do. We've come together to do something today. We've come to respond. We've, we've come to, not to be entertained, but we've come to offer worship to God. Biblical worship is about responding and so if what goes on in our services, our times together, doesn't propel us to response, to a greater obedience to God, then I'm not sure that we've worshipped. Alan Ross put it like this, if worshipers leave a service with no thought of becoming more godly in their lives, then the purpose of worship has not been achieved. If they walk away from an assembly without a conviction that they need to conform their lives to Holy Scripture, even if it means changing their lifestyle, then worship has been perverted somewhere. The clear teaching of Scripture is that worship is life-changing. And indeed it is. Worship always results in the transformation of God's people, a transformation that includes an ongoing obedient response to God. So I want us to think about what the response to authentic worship looks like. Now, I noticed, I'm sure that you've noticed as you've taken out your bulletin today that there are 13 points uh, to the sermon. Um, don't despair. Someone asked, a deacon came and asked me if I was preaching the first half to the first service and the second half to the latter service. Uh, perhaps we'll see. There are probably more, 
There's more than what I'm going to say here this morning, but I want, to, I want you to see something of the variety of responses and ways in which we respond to God in worship. I want you to see a variety, and I hope that as you look at them, that it will spawn more thought and more study in your own life, uh, perhaps throughout the rest of the week as you think about these things. We're only going to be able to touch on them with 13 uh, to mention 13. We've seen many of those responses here in Isaiah already, right? Some of them inferred, some taught directly. For example, first, biblical worship leads us to respond with humility. Humility, to humble ourselves. Uh, we, we saw that in verses 1 through 3 when I, Isaiah encounters God in this vision. He sees him sitting on a throne. He sees him high and lifted up. He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. He sees the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majestic holiness of God, so much so that the whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah says. You don't encounter and worship the God of the Bible without humbling yourself. John Piper says, uh, wrote this, people never leave the Grand Canyon in awe of themselves. And the same is true in worship. You don't encounter God and remain unaffected. Rather, there's a sense of reverence and fear and awe of this one whom we are worshiping. And humility is a heart response, isn't it? It's a heart response. No one else can see this but you. No one knows whether you're humbling yourself this morning before God. You can fake it before other people, but you can't fake it before God. He knows your heart. And when we glimpse the glory of God in His Word, in the songs, the truths that we're singing about Him or in Christ, it always produces genuine humility in our lives. And we should seek this, brothers and sisters. We should humble ourselves before the Lord, as James 4 verse 10 says. It leads to humility. Secondly, biblical worship responds by confessing our sins. And again, we've seen this clearly in Isaiah, right? Verse 5, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. We may not immediately think that confession of sin is worship, but it is very much worship. It is because when we confess our sins, we're humbling ourselves before God. We're also recognizing His holiness, and we're asking for His forgiveness. And so there ought to be a, a part of our worship, a significant part that is drawing us and leading us there. It's interesting, confession of sin has kind of a dual purpose. It's an act of worship, but it's also a preparation for worship. Before we come, we should be doing this. Hebrews 9, 14 talks about how the cleansing that we have in Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve, or you can, uh, the same word, worship the living God. Confession is a part of our worship. It's part of the way we glorify God. In Joshua chapter 7, there's a story there um, worth an afternoon read when Achan uh, sinned by keeping some of the treasure back from the city of Jericho that God had told them to destroy. God said, don't take anything Achan did. Joshua says to him in Joshua 7, 19, he says, My son, speaking to Achan, give glory, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
Confession of sin is glorifying to God. And so likewise, when we come to worship and we refuse to acknowledge our sin, and we refuse to, refuse to grapple with this, we are blaspheming God. It is hypocrisy of the highest kind. Authentic worship always leads to a response of confession of sin. Third, we see from Isaiah, biblical worship leads us to believe the gospel, to believe the gospel. Last week, we noted God's provision for Isaiah's sin, verse 6 and 7, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This pictures the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. The redemption that we have in Jesus that cleanses us from our sins and gives us new life. One of the most important responses in our worship is believing the gospel. It's believing this good news. When we come together, a part of our worship is is retelling this gospel. It is remembering this gospel. It is reciting and singing about this gospel. It is rejoicing in this gospel. And these are all expressions of our faith, our trust in the gospel. Remember remember Romans 4.20 When Paul used Abraham as an illustration, he said, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Faith may be the most basic form of our worship. Uh, Trusting God, trusting that what God says is true. That in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. We don't need to wonder about this. We don't need to waver in this. God is glorified when we believe what He has said He's done for us. And so we don't want to be like the Galatians, whom, after believing the gospel, deserted it. They turned back to their their self-righteousness. Paul asked in Galatians 3, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's something we have to be reminded of over and over again. Luther was once asked by someone in his congregation, why do you preach the gospel to us every week? And Luther says, because you forget it every week. That's true in my own heart, brothers and sisters, and it's true of yours. We must remind ourselves every time we gather, we're proclaiming this gospel. We're reminding ourselves, lest we decide somewhere along the way that it's about us. That it's about our self-righteousness, that that we move on from it in some way. This is part of our worship. Faith pleases God, Hebrews 11 tells us. Believing the gospel brings glory to God. A fourth response in worship. Are are you comfortable with the pace? I think we're going to make it. A fourth response in worship is to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. It, It is impossible to rightly consider God in all of His holiness and then to walk away indifferent about your own sin or even emboldened to continue in your sin. 
Simply put, the more that we love God, the more we will hate sin in all of its manifestations in our lives. This is why Peter exhorted us, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's why Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so let's not, let's not pretend. If, we're, if we gather to worship God and we have no intention of pursuing Him, a holy God, pursuing Him with a holy life that pleases Him, then we're not worshiping Him. If you already know that you're going back to your sin on Monday, and you gather together on Sunday and sing with all of your might and all the loudest voice that you can possibly sing. Do you think that God is fooled? He is not fooled. Do you think He is honored by such worship? He is not honored by that worship. Yes, no one is perfect. We confess that. Amen? Yes, only Christ makes our worship acceptable. We confess that as well. But it's different if we are living in intentional, uh, perpetual sin with no plans of repenting of that sin or turning from that sin. Holiness is precious in God's sight. And to respond to God in worship, a holy God in worship, includes a desire and a commitment on our part. That we want that holiness in our lives. Fifth, to respond in worship means to surrender our will. This is certainly pictured in Isaiah's response in verse 8 when he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah said, Here I am. To worship God is to recognize that He is creator, He is judge, and and the fact that He has redeemed us means that we belong to Him. There's a part in our worship that's meshed so closely to the gospel because worship really is denying yourself, as Jesus said, and taking up your cross and following Him. It's emptying yourself. It's surrendering to one who is infinitely greater than you are. And it's to say, as Isaiah did, here I am. I'm yours, God. This is getting to the heart of, of, of the worship. Paul articulated this so well in Romans 12:1. Lord willing, we will get there eventually. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jesus is the sacrifice that saves our lives, that brought the mercy of God to us. And now in view of these mercies, Paul says that the right response, a response of worship is to now offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. Surrender to God for worship, for service. Here I am, Isaiah said. Now, pause. Let's think about this for a moment, and we've only got moments. But think about what we've said so far, because all five of these first ones that we've mentioned have to do primarily with your heart, don't they? Worship is primarily a heart response. 
It, it begins with the heart. They're, they're, these are heart internal responses to God in worship. And I, I say that right now. It's not that God doesn't desire external responses. Because He does. But, but, and we're going to talk about some of those. But without these internal heart responses, these external responses mean nothing. A sixth response in worship is to make disciples. Verse 8 again in Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. It's hard to read that passage without hearing glimpses of the Great Commission in it. The idea of being sent. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven has been given and on earth has been given to me. That's the surrendering of the will to Jesus. He's our authority in life. And then he says, go therefore. In other words, Jesus is sending and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God is glorified. God is worshipped when we proclaim His Word. When we make disciples, when we evangelize, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he said, Pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored or be glorified. God is glorified when His Word goes forth. When the gospel goes forth, He's, he's worshipped when people hear that gospel and are saved by that gospel. John Piper again wrote this many years ago, worship, he writes, is both the fuel and the goal of missions. Worship is the fuel and the goal. It's worship that propels us to go to begin with because our God is so great and we respond to Him in surrender. Here I am. It's our, it's our worship, uh, our, our, our desire that God would raise up more worshipers for Himself because He is worthy. Amen? But if our worship is weak, our witness will be weak. Worship calls for an ongoing response in proclaiming the gospel, in evangelism, in making disciples, in, in missions. Make disciples. Seven, responding in worship means that we sing joyfully. Can you believe it? We finally got to music. I mean, we're now in the fourth sermon about worship, and I'm down to the seventh point, and we finally brought up music. I thought music was all that was worship. Tongue-in-cheek, I'm speaking to you. There are many verses we could go to here, but perhaps in time, Colossians 3.16 would be the most helpful. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Man, that's, that verse is worthy of a whole sermon. Let me just give you a little outline to think about. Notice the emphasis on the content of what we're singing, right? The Word of Christ. Couldn't be clear. The Word of Christ. Notice the emphasis on the depth of what we're singing. We're not seeing fluffy songs, but worship is partly, he says, to teach and admonish one another. There's a content there. There's a depth 
that is there to be in our worship. It needs to be thoughtful about our God. Notice Paul says there should be a variety of musical forms. Isn't that interesting? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, a variety of music. Notice in our text, in other texts, we find rather a variety of instruments. Psalm 150 is a great place to turn, a variety of instruments used in worship. In Nehemiah and other Bible, Bible verses, there were a variety of singers. There were choirs and there were ensembles. And, and all of which, the main participants, the main instruments, the main voices are always of the people of God. You realize when we gather here today that the most important instrument or voice is yours, church, to bring Him glory. And then notice, singing is an expression. It's an outflow of the hearts. He talks about with grateful, with thankfulness in our hearts to God, we're singing these things. That internal response coming outward in our singing. Sing is a way that we respond. So all of these points are important and and should guide us in our times of worship, our singing together. Eighth, we respond in worship by giving. Give cheerfully. We see this in the Old Testament, people bringing their tithes and their offerings to God as a part of their worship. And in the New Testament, we see similar patterns. Paul instructing Uh, The congregation at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, to bring your offering on the first day of the week, the day that they gathered to worship. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul talks about giving cheerfully with a heart that recognizes the impact of the grace of God on your life. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. First we give of ourselves, and then we give of our resources as a way of honoring God, worshiping Him, giving is a response in worship. Prayer is a response in worship. Prayer, Jesus said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, here's why, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It glorifies God when we come to Him in prayer. It really is the the means by which we express much of what we've already said above. It expresses our dependence on God, our ongoing need for Him in our lives. In this particular verse, praying in Jesus' name means praying on behalf of Jesus, making His request, our request, in line with His will and His word. And so when you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying for what Jesus wants, and you're you're basing that on what He has taught us in His word. And the writer, Jesus says there that God is glorified by this. He's glorified, worshiped when we pray to Him. No wonder Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Tenth, we're looking good. God is glorified when we bear fruit. When we bear fruit, John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. That's pretty plain. How? That you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is a picture of righteousness. 
of the righteousness of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things. It's the kinds of things that, that we see in our God that reflect His his character and His beauty. Colossians 1.10 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. How do we worship God? How do we bring glory to Him? What should be our response? Bearing fruit is a part of our worship of Him. 11. We worship by persevering through suffering. Through suffering. You may have not have thought of this before, but living for the glory of God always involves some measure of suffering. First Peter 4, well, the whole book is really an important book on this topic, but First Peter 4, verse 14 and 16 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. In that name. It's really the whole theme of Peter's letter there, this relationship between suffering and glory. And it's saying, Here am I, send me. It's the same measure, knowing that this will be costly, knowing that there may be suffering involved with my obedience, there may be persecution, there may be suffering, and yet I'm willing. MacArthur writes, to suffer for him is the supreme honor to his holy name. It says that we count him as our highest prize and portion. So we worship God by our willingness to do hard things. We worship God by our willingness to endure suffering for him and to persevere in it. Twelve. Responding to God in worship means to be content. It means to be content. Paul talked about this, Philippians 4, again, a great afternoon read. Uh, contentment in our hearts and our lives, it testifies to the wisdom and sovereignty of God. It testifies that we're resting, whereas discontentment is not trusting God. It's essentially blaming God for all that is wrong. So Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And then verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Contentment is a worshipful response. It, it, it exposes a heart that is trusting, that is relying on God, that is enjoying the, the goodness of God. Such contentment is a mark of a worshiper, of someone who says, as we talked about on Wednesday, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is sufficient. And then finally, when all these things are in place, live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
So that is when we're humbling ourselves and we're confessing our sins and we're believing the gospel and we're pursuing holiness in our lives and we're surrendering ourselves, there's a great sense if you get those first five down and, and which we're seeking uh, to glorify God in all that we do. All that we do. All our activities become when we have this posture of worship, all of our activities are about bringing God glory. Even the most basic of human activities of eating and drinking become, in a sense, ways to glorify God. Here I am. Send me. Use me. May my life bring you glory And all that I do. We live in worship for the glory of God. See, you made it through 13 points. Amen? And I have one minute, but I'm not done. I, I, I want you to think in closing here about all that we've said these weeks. In the, in the grand scheme of redemptive history, this is the principal thing that God is doing, wants to do, is doing in our lives. He is transforming sinners into worshipers. This is his goal. Jesus said the purpose for which he came, Luke 19, was for the, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John 4, the purpose of his seeking, he tells the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father, notice, is seeking. He's seeking such people to worship him. The Father sent Christ to seek and to save for the purpose of producing worshiping people. Worshiping people. We have been saved to worship, church. The chief end, the chief purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and ever. Perhaps the best definition of a Christian is found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, when Paul says those who worship Christians are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is contrasting the Judaizers, false teachers, with those who are true Christians. And he says the distinguishing mark of a true Christian, of genuine faith, is someone who worships God. Worshiper. Many would say today that the mark of, of an authentic Christian is love. And unfortunately, that love is often generically defined as some kind of an acceptance or, or kindness that ignores the truth of God. But, but the Scriptures teach that the mark of a genuine believer is one who would worship God in spirit and in truth. A worshiper. We've been created to worship him. We have been saved to worship God. Every glimpse of heaven in the scriptures indicate that worship will be our eternal occupation before Him, just as we begin our service today. So my hope is that once we grasp this and the implications of all that we have been 
talking about these last few weeks, that we would approach worship on Sundays, and really even every day, dramatically uh, impacted. And, and hopefully we'll never again be able to say and come in this room and say, well, I hope we have a good time in here today. Or I hope that, that the music is good today, or I like the music today, or whatever, but that our sights, church, would be set so much higher than that. The glory of God in Christ. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. May God be glorified in us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning, for all that it teaches us, Lord, about worship, and I know that we've just, in many ways, touched the surface, Lord, but I pray that these things, these basics would be on our hearts and minds every time that we gather, and may they even be in our hearts and minds this morning, uh, even as we sing this last song, may we behold the glory of you and have a response as Isaiah did, here am I. Send me, use me, be glorified in me. May we all have that heart today and be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.